look at, uh, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. We'll take a look at tonight as we continue with Paul's condemnation of the Jew, the third category of person that he says is condemned and in need of a Savior or in need of righteousness or in need of justification. I hope you understand that all three of those mean the same thing. First, he talks about the condemnation of the immoralist in chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, the condemnation of the moralist in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, and the condemnation of the Jew in chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, he'll give a summary statement, the condemnation of the whole world in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. A brief review of what Paul talked about last week in chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. What Paul is saying in that section, and I know we covered a rather extended section all at once, but that was my intention because I wanted to give you the flavor of the whole thing and not break it up into so many individual parts that you lose the beauty of what Paul's overall argument was. But basically, Paul is saying this. To the Jew, if you present yourself as a person who relies on God and His law and even teach others the meaning of the law, and impress upon them that they should live in harmony with it, how is it that you yourself don't practice what you preach? They were the custodians of the law, yet they had rejected the law. Paul's not just saying that, that, that they're not uh, perfect. That is part of what he's saying. But he's saying you have rejected the very essence of the law. That's the internal aspect of the law, which is faith. You go for an external circumcision, but you don't go for a circumcision of the heart. So Paul draws a sharp distinction in chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, between Jew and Jew. He does this now, and he's going to do it again in chapters 9 through 11. But he introduces it now. He draws a sharp distinction between the person who is a Jew outwardly only. That is, a Jew by virtue of physical or biological descent and nothing more. We might call that a racial Jew. And he contrasts that person with the individual who is a Jew not only outwardly, but also inwardly. That is a Jew who has, in obedience to the law, trusted Yahweh for salvation. Jew, the Jew, Paul says, is just as guilty as the immoralist and the moralist, because tragically, even though they had the law, they did not follow the law and did the very things they taught against. Remember when we spoke of the moralist, Paul says that they had the law written on their hearts. So even though they didn't have the written law, they were still condemned because they knew right from wrong. The Jew is doubly condemned because they had the law written on their hearts, but they also had the law written on tablets of stone. And so they were doubly condemned. There's a distinction that Paul introduces here that he'll play out in, in full orb once we get to chapters 9 through 11. That Some commentators get very, very frustrated with Paul here, which I find is interesting because they're getting very, very frustrated with God. I think sometimes people sit in those little cubicles for a little too long and they need to come out and get a little air because some of the things they write are absolutely absurd when they talk about frustrating the Paul, Paul's frustrating argument. Well, they're, they're frustrated because he introduces something here, and then he doesn't explain it thoroughly until chapters 9 through 11. Believe me, he'll get back to it. Also, believe me, be very careful with, with criticizing Paul's argument. It's, it's a divinely inspired argument. I wouldn't do it that way. The Jew, Paul is, is saying to the Jew and to everybody else, 
The Jew does not get a pass into heaven for being born Jewish. As I said a few weeks ago, and I, ho- and I hope you take this in the right way, and I know some of you have Jewish backgrounds, and you're, you're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ now where there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. I hope you understand that. But in the past, tragically, the Jewish race has been the recipients of, ex- of, of extreme racism. And of course, we think about Hitler, but you can also go back to the Spanish Inquisition and Torquemada. And, and other more isolated periods of time in history, they had been the, the recipients of extreme racism. They were persecuted because they were Jewish. Inexcusable, uh, and it, it should be avoided by the believer in Jesus Christ at all costs. There is never an excuse for anti-Semitism. So don't take what I say next as an excuse for anti-Semitism. I'm not saying that. But it is a bit ironic that the very people who ought to be the last people on earth to be racist, are in a very not-so-subtle way some of the biggest racists on the planet. And by that I mean people who are Jewish that believe they're going to heaven because they were born Jewish, and that someone is not going to heaven because they weren't born Jewish. That's a form of racism as well. I think God, when he sees that, he sees the irony in that, and he's not pleased by it all. Again, that's no excuse for ever piling on to anti-Semitism, but I'm just saying that the Jew doesn't get a pass into heaven because they're born a Jew. I've had discussions with Jewish people. I love having discussions with Jewish people. I had a friend that we were were speaking about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. She was about to go, and I uh, explained to her what the Day of Atonement was, even though she attended every year, she never really understood from a Jewish perspective what that was. We had a marvelous conversation. At the end of it, she says, you know, I, I didn't really think you liked Jews. And I said, why would you say that? They said, well, you're a Christian, right? And I said, yeah. She said, you're a Christian minister, right? And I said, yeah. I said, why would you think I don't like Jews? So well, I just that's just the understanding I always had. I said, on the contrary, I worship a Jew. I worship the Jewish Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And and in fact, most of the New Testament was written by Jews. Far from it. I've got nothing against the Jew whatsoever. I revere, I worship, I count on a Jew to get me into heaven. So no, there's, there's no reason for a believer ever to have any attitude toward the Jew that they wouldn't have toward anyone else. You, you want to get them into heaven. Now, granted, sometimes even Jewish Christians can get a little arrogant about their race. I know some that are, some professors at certain universities uh, that, in fact, one, I decided not to do any doctoral work there because I would have to have this guy, and he just pounds his Jewish Christianity into the ground. Well, I look at Galatians chapter 3, which says, in Christ there is no distinction anymore. So I frankly don't care for the term Jewish Christianity. Could be wrong, but I don't think so. I don't care for the term Gentile Christianity. In Christ, we're in Christ. You leave those racial, uh, you leave those racial things behind. That's why I don't believe in any kind of color than Christianity. That's, that should be out. There's no distinction there. So a person doesn't get a pass just for being a Jew any more than a child of a Christian gets a pass into heaven just because they have Christian parents. doesn't work that way either. 
doesn't matter how you were born. And for some people, that's bad news. If that's what you're counting on, that's bad news. But if you think of it correctly, it's the best news in the world. Because no one is going to be excluded from the kingdom of heaven because of their birth. No one. Everyone that's born on this planet has had their sins poured out upon Christ on the cross and judged. The, the price has been paid. Now it's up to you to d determine whether you're going to accept that payment or whether you're going to choose to pay the payment yourself. But as A.W. Tozer once said, if you choose to pay the payment yourself, remember you're going to do it eternally. So be very careful if that's the choice that you make. Christ has already paid for it. No sense in you paying for it yourself. So Paul has now condemned the Jew. By now, the Jew, to use our metaphor that we've been using sitting in chair number three, has got to be frustrated, maybe a little irritated, with a little dash of anger perhaps thrown in. And you can just see the Jew in Paul's argument throwing his hands up and saying, well, then what advantage is there in being a Jew? Or what benefit is there to circumcision? At this point, Paul handles a potential objector or an objection. Paul knows the Jewish mind very well. He had one of the greatest Jewish minds that we know of, and at least of his day. He was one of the most respected rabbis, teachers of the law of his day. Apparently, he was the, the primo seminary student of his day. He rose up, the reason we know this is that he rose up in the ranks of, of, uh, of Jewish organization very, very quickly, much younger than most people did of his time. He, apparently, he had an intellect that just wouldn't quit. And we see that worked out through the, utilized by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, particularly in this book that we're studying right now. But Paul knew the Jewish mind. It's possible that when Paul raises some of these objections, at least the ones in this section, maybe not the ones in chapter 6 and beyond, but when Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew? It could be that he's speaking from his own perspective prior to salvation. Or from a perspective he would have had, had he never been saved. That's a very good possibility. But Paul's saying, he's, he's introducing an objector that says, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'll buy all that other stuff. I'll buy the Gentile needing a Savior. Moral and immoral, that's fine with me. But have you forgotten that the Jews are God's chosen people? Have you not read the Old Testament? Well, that's the objection that Paul is saying. So he's saying, in order, if in order to amount to something, one has to be a Jew inwardly and must have experienced circumcision of the heart, then is there any advantage in being a Jew in the broader literal sense or in having been physically circumcised? Is there any advantage to being a racial Jew? Well, if you look at verse 2, Paul says, yeah, much in every way. New American Standard translates it, great in every respect. First of all, that the, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. There are many passages in the Old Testament that do say that the Jew has an advantage, that the Jew was privileged. In Psalm 147.20, Isaiah 5.5, Amos 2, uh, uh, 2 and 3. When we get to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 8. In fact, we have time to do that. Hold your place here. Put a little mark there and go over to Matthew 22. We studied it 
not that long ago, I guess it was late last year, when we studied the life of Christ series, but let me just remind you of it. This is a parable of the marriage feast. And you'll see, from Christ's perspective, the Jews were the first ones invited. Of course, wouldn't that be an advantage, don't you think? To be the very first ones that were invited into the kingdom? Look at verse 22, chapter 22 of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, beginning of verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Jesus is in conflict right now with the Pharisees, and they, they had heard the Pharisees, but I mean, they had heard the parables that Jesus was preaching, but instead of responding to the parables that he was teaching, they tried to seize him to kill him. Not exactly the response you'd think you ought to give to the Messiah, right? So that's why he brings up this parable. That's the context. So the, in, in context, the ones who were unwilling to come, the ones who had been invited first, are the Jews. That's who he came first and foremost. It doesn't mean to the exclusion of anyone else. But the Jew definitely has an advantage because they were the first one to get the invitation. But they were unwilling to accept their own Messiah. That's the irony of talking to a Jewish friend. I've accepted their Messiah. That, that's a long way from being anti-Semitic. I love Jesus Christ. How do you feel about it? In verse 4, again he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. He loves the Jew. He's not going to just tell them one time, maybe they didn't get the invitation. Maybe they didn't understand the invitation. Send more people out. Tell them, you've got to come. I've got this incredible blessing for you. I've got a feast for you. You're not going to, you can't believe in a million years. And that feast, is, is in one context, is the millennium. The kingdom, the, the kingdom on earth. But in verse 5, they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm another to his own business, and then speaking, referring to the Pharisees, look at verse 6, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Well, they're doing that to the Messiah himself. The, the Jews, throughout their own history, killed the prophets of God that were sent to invite them into the kingdom. By the way, we look at Jesus Christ and... There, there are many dimensions to his perfection. One dimension is what seems like to us incredible patience and long-suffering. You, know, you, you, you remember Habakkuk? How long, O oh Lord? How long are you going to let this take place? Uh, prophet after prophet asks essentially the same question. He, in his perfection, he has just the right amount of patience. But you're going to watch here and throughout the rest of Scripture, but particularly in this parable, that patience is not infinite. His patience is perfect. But to say he had infinite patience would mean that his patience had no end. So he has perfect patience, which means it's got just the right length or duration to it, and it's going to run out. Whether it's the Jew or whether it's the Gentile and the offer is to get into the kingdom, 
whether it's you as a believer in Jesus Christ, and the offer is to be restored to fellowship and get it right, there is a limit to God's patience. Don't think that it is infinite just because he is perfect. Um, I'm not so sure infinite, well, I know infinite patience would not be a perfection if there were injustices that take place. We see injustices all the time just like the prophets did. Uh, I see them in the Chronicle. I see them in the Boston Globe and how things are reported. I see them when I watch a man uh, getting beat up over a bus ticket (laughs) when I was with the Jim and and Kiv a a few months back, a 10-cent bus ticket. You know, I see all kind of injustices that take place all over the world all the time. And we almost think, well, did God, did you miss that one? Did, did, you, did you miss the fact that my boss is treating me very unfairly? No. He hadn't missed it. He will work with it at the proper time. So then verse 6, the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Verse 7, but the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to those, to the slaves, to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you can find there, invite them to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Now, be, be careful. We'll, we'll explain the evil and the good right now. In verse 11, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes, which in context is not having exercised faith. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into outer darkness, in that place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The point in Matthew 22 that I wanted to make uh, by bringing it up here is that the Jew had an advantage because they were the first ones to get the invitation. Now, the other place where the Apostle Paul is going to enlarge on this, again, will be in chapter 9, and as long as we're turning places, again, hold chapter 3. Look over just a, a couple chapters to Romans chapter 9 and take a look at verse verse 3. It's primarily verses 4 and 5 where these, these things are listed, but look at verse 3 so we get to the first of the sentence. Remember, this is where Paul is going to elaborate on what he introduces here. Paul says, For I wish I could my, that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ's sake, for Christ, for the, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is one of the only places in the Bible where the term brethren is not used of another believer in Jesus Christ. And Paul identifies that by saying, My brethren, racially, those who are racial Jews, I love them. If I could go to hell and they would go to heaven, I would do that. And I believe the Apostle Paul meant it. Because that's the kind of person he was. And then he's going to list in, in verses 4 and 5 the advantages that they have. This is one of those things that all the commentators, or some, got, got really upset for that Paul waited this long, but here they are. Who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. That's promises plural. They were also given the promise singular which is the promise of the Messiah, but that was for the entire world. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ or the Messiah according to the flesh, so the Christ would be a Jew. 
who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. One of the strongest passages in the Word of God on the deity of Jesus Christ. So, again, there are advantages. So when the Jew says, uh, have you not read the Old Testament? Paul said, well, yeah. Yeah, I, read, I recognize that. There are advantages, much in every respect. When Paul calls the role of Jewish advantages, one item tops all the others, though, namely the fact that to the Jews and to no other nation, to no other race, was accorded the unique privilege, the high honor of being custodians of the oracles of God. The entire special revelation to Israel, which consisted not only of commandments, but also of predictions and promises, but basically the oracles of God are God's self-revelation to his creation given to the Jews. God spoke. Francis Schaeffer had a wonderful small book that he entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. And thank God that he wasn't. We are not deists. We are theists. We believe that God spoke to his creation and is intimately involved in his creation. Wouldn't it be terrible? I'd hate to be a deist. Wouldn't it be terrible to believe that there was a God, but not to believe that he spoke to us at all and he, he give, gave any self-revelation at all? That would be terrible. But some, uh, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why there aren't very many deists out there. The ones that are are uh, a few and far between. So they had God's own self-revelation given to them. Now, don't you think that's a pretty good advantage, too? They were the first ones invited into the kingdom, and they were given the word of God. It was entrusted to the Jews to be accepted by faith, to be obeyed where obedience was an issue, to be held in honor, and watch this, to be transmitted to others. They were never given the word of God to keep all to themselves, to keep right into their little club or into their nation. The reason they were given it was so that they could be the custodians of it and transmit it to others. The rejection by a large percentage of Jewish people over the course of their history eventually led to this privilege being removed. That being said, there's still a future for Israel. The Jews are still God's people, but they are not currently the custodians of the Word of God. That privilege and responsibility now falls with the church. Israel's condemnation, we understand. They were condemned, not to hell in this sense, they were condemned to not be the custodians of the Word anymore because they didn't do anything with it or did very little with it. Isolated pockets, yes, where they transmitted the Word like they were supposed to. But on the whole, they had this incredible precious revelation and they refused to tell other people about it I wonder if God doesn't look at the church with the same condemnation as he did to Israel we have we are now the custodians of the word of God we have advantages that the Jews never dreamed of having we have satellites that can transmit what we do here to the other side of the world in you know, just a second or two. Somebody in China could, or, or um, some nation that would have access to Internet, China has some, I guess, 
could get on the internet and probably tomorrow or the next day listen to the message that we're giving here tonight. I mean, incredible, incredible technology. The church has been blessed with with technology that that would make the spread of the gospel oh so much easier than the hardships that they had in the past. But are we really doing the job that we were that we were given to do? I say we as the church universal. I'm talking about all believers in Jesus Christ in, in one whole bundle. Not I'm not talking about individual pockets or individual ministries, but on the whole, maybe, maybe not. Churches interested in numerical growth over spiritual growth have all but abandoned the duty to teach God's Word by design. I mean, I know it's, it may be shocking to you. Part of you may be saying, I don't know how I can believe that. Maybe you're exaggerating. Maybe that's hyperbole. It's not. Uh, you, you, don't, uh, don't, you don't have to believe me. Just research it for yourself. That is the philosophy of many churches, to set aside the teaching of the Word of God. You see how absurd that is? That was, that's our duty now. That's our responsibility to transmit it. But some churches are so concerned with numerical growth that, we, that they set aside the teaching of the Word in order not to offend anybody. Numerical growth is right. Numerical growth is good and normally indicates health in a church. But it should be the result of the Holy Spirit's ministry and not just some sort of crass marketing based upon the idea that when you come to this church, you're not going to be confronted with any kind of sin. You're not going to be told what to do. There'll be no absolute standards here. Just come one, come all, come any way you want to come. And by the way, we won't try to change you when you're here. And we condemn the Jews for not transmitting the Word of God. And again, I say that we, in a, in a very general sense, uh, there, are, there are some incredible ministries going on right now. I'm just wondering if we're doing it to the degree that we've been blessed with this advantage. I read this, and I study this, and I say, oh, wow. And you almost have to start to shudder that the same things might could be said about the church. We've been greatly blessed, but yet we don't seem to take it as seriously as a church, as a whole. As we should. I'm certainly not talking about you specifically, uh, or our church specifically, or even uh, you know the Bible Church, Dallas Seminary. Those those kind of things are people outside that, of course. But I'm talking about Christianity as a whole. It doesn't seem to be that interested in proclaiming the Word of God to people that haven't heard it. So here's Paul's argument: privileges imply duties. Honors go hand in hand with responsibilities. Could it be truthfully stated that Israel had shouldered these responsibilities? That it had been faithful to the trust that God gave her? No. Well, if not, then, uh, what, what comes next? And Paul answers that in verses 3 and 4. Well, what then? Okay. If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Paul answers in verse 4, May it never be, meganoito, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mayst be justified in thy words and, that, and mightst prevail when thou art judged. When Paul asked this question in verse 3, what then if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Just the very form of that question in Greek demands a negative answer. There's a way that the Greeks formed a question that would say demand an answer in the positive. There's a way they formed it 
to demand an answer in the negative. This is one of those ones that's formed to demand a negative answer. Just, uh, just so we don't miss it, Paul uses the strongest possible negative answer he can give us to make sure we understand the demands negative. But the, that Israel as a people had been blessed with many advantages cannot be questioned. But does this fact, considered by itself, guarantee a rosy future for Israel? No. Paul's driving home this point that just because you're born with advantages doesn't mean you're going to get into heaven. Think of this. this. This is an example that many of you probably, I hope, can't relate to, but maybe know people that can. <laughs> um, say, say you have someone that comes from a, a very privileged family. I'm talking about privileged in the sense of, of having some significant financial resources. And, and uh, I'm going to talk about a, a male. Maybe the male comes up gets through high school, is, is allowed, because the, the family has significant financial resources, uh, to go to college, uh, to go to college without having to work their way through college, to have room and board and tuition paid. It's no problem. Say this person enjoys excellent physical health, has a good intellect, and uh, perhaps even a high intellect, and the, the college that they go to is a very good college, you know, amongst what people think are good colleges and has the best teachers that one can have. But in spite of that, and I think we all know people who at least know people who have been in this position, in spite of that, this person never graduates college. Has all the advantages going into it, but never graduates. Why? Because a lot of times people in that particular position don't apply themselves very diligently to their work. They don't take advantage of the advantages that they have. In fact, Robert Bork in his book, Slouching Towards Gomorrah, makes this particular point. He says that was the problem with the radical 60s, at least at Yale, where he was teaching. He said the kids didn't have to work. Their parents were sending them oodles and gobs of money. They didn't go to class either and had time to organize, organize protests against the Vietnam War and sit-downs and, and against whatever else they wanted to protest because they had these incredible advantages, and instead of using them to honor the people that had sent them there, used them to dishonor their family and, in my view, uh, dishonored their nation as well. So they were not faithful to their trust, which is all Paul saying about the Jew. And we could say it, the jury's out, but we could say it about the church as well if we're not careful. So this, let, let this be a warning to us all. As verses 21 through 23 of chapter 2 has shown, this is the same problem that Paul is dealing with with Israel. Now, so they didn't believe. In verse 3, what if some did not believe? Now, so Paul is not saying that the entire Jewish nation has been condemned. No, it's some. The ones who rejected faith in Yahweh, or in Paul's time, faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, those are doomed. So he doesn't say that all Jews are doomed. He very tactfully and mercifully says here that some were unfaithful. Even now he's distinguishing between all Israel and all Israel is not Israel, as he will in chapter 9, verse 6. So the unfaithfulness of people doesn't nullify God's faithfulness, does it? No. Very, very strong negative 
Does he mean in spite of their unfaithfulness, God is still going to grant them a glorious future? No to that one either. God is going to remain faithful no matter what we do. Sometimes we don't live that way. Sometimes we think that God's up there just tapping his foot, waiting for me to do the right thing so his plan could go forward. Well, guess what, Scooter? It ain't done work that way. God's plan is going to go forward with or without any one of us. We should be privileged to be on the playing field and be part of that team. Don't ever think we've got God over a barrel. If we choose not to obey, then oh, he's just going, well, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Bruce is not obeying. <laughs> well, guess what? That's right. You fill in your own name, too. Because anybody can be replaced with someone who will be faithfully obedient. God's not, God is not going to change his plan on account of us. So, no, God's, God is not going to be rendered, he's not going to change because some of the Jews didn't accept him. And we see this in the church age. There was a, he just worked another custodian to come in. It's not going to throw up his hands and say, well, I'm not going to reveal myself to man anymore since the Jews aren't going to put out my word. He brought the church in and the Holy Spirit, which the Jews weren't blessed with in the same way that, that we are. Since God is faithful, those Jews who are faithful to him and therefore to that which has been entrusted to them will certainly receive the fulfillment of the promises. But the God who is faithful to his promises is also faithful to his threats. He's, he's promised to condemn if you don't believe. He's just as faithful to that as he is to the other side of it. Divine faithfulness is a priceless comfort for the faithful, but it's an earnest warning for those in danger of becoming unfaithful. It's an indication of doom for those who continue to be untrustworthy. I think so many believers maybe had parents that didn't follow through on their threat. You make a threat, if you do this, then I'm going to spank you. If you do this, you won't be able to go to the prom. You do it, you don't get spanking, so you do it, you got to go to the prom anyway, you start thinking God's that way. God, God follows through. So the very suggestion that God might be unfaithful causes Paul to shudder, and so he exclaims, Meganoito. Meganoito is the strongest possible negative. It, it should be translated, absolutely not, there's no possible way. Uh, heck no, that's not going to happen. Just fill in the blanks for the strongest possible way Paul could say that's not going to happen so he adds let God be true though every person a liar quotation from two Old Testament sources Paul places divine veracity or truth and human falsehood over against each other in short contrast and and praise that full recognition is going to be given to the veracity of God human falsehood and unfaithfulness far from nullifying divine faithfulness, cause it to stand out in bold contrast. Now watch what Paul's doing. We're going to have to finish this up uh, next week. But I want to, in the last two or three minutes we've got here tonight, I want you to see this contrast. Paul points out our unrighteousness, our unfaithfulness. And he's going to say, does that mean that God is therefore unfaithful? Just because we go down, does he go down with us? No. We go down the, the unfaithfulness trail. He remains faithful. And what is drawn is a huge contrast between. He's not like us. He's even more unlike us when we become unfaithful. And he's going to use an example from Psalm 51, a quotation from David's confession psalm, 
to make his point. Um, I was tempted to, to stop and next week study Psalm 51 because I think we need to do it. We need to study Psalm 51, Psalm 32, and 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 2-2 all together. I'm not going to do it on Wednesday nights or on a series of Wednesday nights. I'm also not going to do it there within perfect time in a way, to do it on Sunday night when we get to David's sin with Bathsheba because he's going to write this psalm right after that. But this is so important, and there are some nuances that have to do with 1 John 1, 9 that we find in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 that I think we have, we have missed the subtle greatness of, that we're going to take some time when we finish 1 Peter on Sunday mornings, and I want to cover it with the entire body at Pine Valley. That's how important I think this is. But you remember Psalm 51, or at least the context, I'm sure David had sinned. He had seduced Bathsheba. He had killed her husband. Uh, he'd gone about a year without getting back into fellowship. Nathan the prophet comes up to David and by means of a parable talks about a rich man who had deprived a poor man of one of his little ewe lambs. David being a shepherd said that man ought to die. He prescribes a death sentence on himself because Nathan turns to him and says, you're the man. And then David immediately confesses and has... Uh, a deep sorrow and, and uh, a regret for what he's done. And in Psalm 51, he says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. And then in Romans chapter 3, 4, he, can, he quotes what David says next. I confess this in order that you may be proved right in what you say and you may be proved, I'll paraphrase, proved right in the way that you judge. So it's clear, therefore, that David's aim was to make his confession as frank, open, and unconditional as possible in order that on that dark background of his own righteousness, God's righteousness in judging him would stand out all the more clearly. David's coming clean saying, yes, I have sinned. What I did was dead wrong. There is no excuse, sir. And what David does... When he, doesn't, when he doesn't try to make excuses, when he doesn't try to soften his sin, when he comes with a sincere, honest, and open and humble confession, there is a contrast that's drawn in Psalm 51. This is what we'll see a few months from now when we study that psalm in depth. But there's a contrast between David's sin and God's righteousness. You want to know another reason why we say David was a man after God's own heart? He didn't mind doing that. And it wasn't for his own benefit. He didn't mind looking bad in the interest of honesty to demonstrate how great God was. That's what David's doing there. My sin is as sinful as it could be. You're as holy as you could be. And this is what Paul does here. David wants God to triumph. So now again, then what advantage has the Jew or what benefit is, is there in circumcision? Much in every way. There are benefits to the Jewish objector that Paul, Paul answers. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. One quick thing. You see, he says they. Uh, that was in the past, but Paul now is a new creature in Christ. He's still Jewish racially, but he's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's separating himself from that group. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then if some did not, be, uh, did not believe? Did unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? key things. Some didn't believe, not all of them. Some didn't. But no, that doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. It just brings it out into black and white. That's why he quotes Psalm 51, another psalm where it's brought out in black and white. And the righteousness will, will 
picture as white. David's sin is black. David's sin is as black as it could be. God's righteousness is as white as it could be. And so that's what Paul does here. He draws a distinction between man's unrighteousness and God's righteousness, man's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness, and leaves it there. And that's what we'll have to do. We'll pick it up again the next time we meet. Tom, could you?